part six of this glorious vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, We've seen the bridegroom, Jesus himself, we've seen his victories uh, and the victory that he has given to his people, the saints reigning in Christ. Last week we saw the Father on his throne uh, ready to, uh, having put everything in place, ready to now present the bride and the groom to one another. And that's where we are uh, today. Now last week, if you remember, we saw a scene in which the earth and the sky fled from the presence of the Father on his throne, but the sea remained to give up its dead so that they could be judged by him. Well, here in this next part of the vision, we see that scenario in a way reversed. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and this time the sea is gone. There's a significant meaning in that picture. See, the sea with its restless waves is a symbol of the turmoil and the chaos of human and spiritual evil. A picture of the raging nations. Remember how the first beast, back in chapter 13, representing worldly and human political powers came out of the sea. The sea was considered by ancient people to be the entrance to the abyss, the bottomless pit, the domain of evil spirits. That's why Jesus' disciples were so terrified when they were caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee because to die at sea is the worst way to die in their thinking as your body sank to the depths of the earth, lost forever. But as we saw last week, the one seated on the great white throne is Lord over the deepest depths of the sea. He forced the sea to give up its dead and to put an end to its raging. Remember how in that vision of the throne of God, before the throne was a sea of glass, calm, clear like crystal, because under his good and just rule, There is peace and order. So in this picture of the new creation, there's no more raging sea because the raging of the nations and all of the destruction that sinful humanity has brought to this world has finally ceased. Just like his work in the first creation, there was the formlessness and emptiness of the waters And it was replaced with the fruitfulness and the order of God's good design. So too in his work of salvation and the new creation, there's order and fruitfulness. And that's what's being pictured here, the new creation, a new heaven and earth. Takes us right back to Genesis 1.1. This isn't the end, it is the new beginning The day of judgment won't be the conclusion of history, it will merely be the transition from this age of preparation to the age of eternity, from the betrothal to the marriage itself. 
Now this creation framework helps us clear up some misunderstandings about the terminology that's used here. The word translated heaven in verse 21 verse 1 is actually the same word in 20 verse 11 that's translated sky. Both Greek and Hebrew only have one word for heaven, which in both languages means literally is used mostly to refer to the sky. In our modern language, we've adopted a way of thinking that makes sky and heaven two different things. We think of sky as the part of the creation that's above our heads, our atmosphere and outer space, whereas heaven we think of as a spiritual dimension in which God and the angels and spiritual beings exist. Nearly always though, when the Bible uses this word heaven, it's referring to the sky, which obviously for the ancient people, right up to only recently in our human history, the sky has been that part of creation that's inaccessible to us, to human beings. So when Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's a statement about God being the creator of all things, visible and invisible. He made this domain of the earth on which we live and he made the domain of the heavens above us inaccessible to us. Even today we think we're so clever because we've invented aeroplanes to fly through the heavens. We can even go to the moon and maybe soon even to Mars. We think we've got up into the heavens but we know, don't we, that we live in a universe that is 94 billion light years across. And so the heavens in that sense will never humanly speaking, be accessible to us. God has designed creation in this way to communicate to us something of his nature and his relationship to us. Romans 1.20 says, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So creation communicates to us something of who God is. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The language that the Bible uses of God being in heaven isn't telling us there's a literal location up in the sky where God lives because that would mean that God God is somehow contained within his creation. No, it uses these words to communicate this idea that God is actually not part of his creation. He's above, he's beyond and over the domain of the earth where we dwell. He's in a realm that is inaccessible to us, his creatures. Because the only reality outside of creation is 
God himself. Now it's very hard for us as preachers to comprehend the reality of who God is as the eternal, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God. And so God in his kindness to us as his creatures has designed the universe to be an illustration of this difference for us to look at. And he's revealed himself to us in this creaturely language, describing things from our perspective so that we can have this analogy of heaven and earth to begin to comprehend the distinction between God and us. Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The heavens and the earth is like a parable telling us of that difference between the creator and his creatures. Now the ancient pagan belief was that the gods literally did live in homes up in the sky somewhere. That they were like superhumans who were subject to the same creaturely limitations as us. They squabbled and fought over territory and power and influence. They got married and had children. But the Jews knew that their God wasn't contained in the heavens because the heavens were created by him. So while God is active and rules over the heavens and the earth, he is in fact above the heavens. Psalm 57, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. The heaven of heavens, in other words, beyond the actual heavens, the heaven which is heaven to the heavens. For thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? He cannot be contained in this creation. He is above it all. Now it's vital for us to know this because as we look at this passage, it will save us from reading it in the wrong way and from thinking wrongly about what our eternal future will be. Many people wrongly imagine that our final destination is heaven, meaning a kind of spiritual existence absent from our bodies, away from this world. Now that idea is completely foreign to the Bible. It actually comes from Greek philosophy and from Eastern religion in which spirit is good and body or physical material is bad. You may have heard ideas like the real you is your spirit and your body is just a shell, a a vehicle in which the real spiritual you lives. One day you will be free from the constraints of your body and you'll be spiritual in heaven. Well, nothing could be more unbiblical. The Bible tells us that everything God made All the physicality of this world, us as physical creatures, 
as part of it are very good. So good, in fact, that the Son of God was delighted to take upon himself the physicality of a body, to display in his life the dignity and the goodness of being a creature embodied, made in God's image and going about doing all the good that God has entrusted human beings to do in this creation. You see that in verse 2. Note the direction of travel. The new Jerusalem isn't being taken up into heaven out of the earth, but is coming down out of heaven to earth from God. Some biblical scholars suggest this is referring specifically to the saints of the past who are currently with Christ and are coming now to take their true residence on, in their true home on the new earth. But I think it actually represents all the saints, not just those who have died. See, this same idea, this picture of verse 2 is also communicated to us in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now some people believe this passage is speaking of uh, what's been called the secret rapture, a teaching that says the church will be suddenly taken up out of the world into heaven just before a time of great tribulation and only non-believers will be left behind wondering why all the Christians have vanished. But if we look at this passage more closely, we'll see it's actually describing something quite different. Firstly, there's nothing secret about this. It's very public, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. So it's not a secret thing. Everyone sees and hears. And notice again the direction of travel. The Lord will descend from heaven and the saints, both those who have already died and those who are still alive, will be caught up to meet him in the clouds. But the big question is what happens next? Does the Lord then change direction to join the saints on their way up to heaven? Or rather, do the saints, the bride... Once they've met the Lord, their bridegroom, then continue with him as he comes down onto earth to reign. It's actually that second scenario. We know it is because this is actually a picture of a victorious king returning in victory to his people. And the people come out of the city to welcome him and then they join in his victory parade as he comes into the city. Jesus even enacted this for us when he came into Jerusalem. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was like a role play. He was pointing forward to what's been described in today's passage. We see Jesus riding in his victory, not on a donkey that speaks of gentleness and humility as he came to take that path to the cross, but he rides on a white horse which speaks of his authority now to rule the nations with an iron rod. He's riding and he's riding to collect his bride, to bring her to his father's house. And last week, as I said, we saw the father on the throne ready to receive them and to present them to one another. Now, the bride comes to join her bridegroom and to take up residence in the dwelling place that has been prepared for her, the new heavens and the new earth. Not up there in heaven somewhere, but right here. This earth made new. See what the Father says in verse 3. Does it say the dwelling place of man is with God up in heaven, but the dwelling place of God is with man. Now you might say, hang on, didn't Jesus say, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be, take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Sounds a bit like Jesus coming to take us away to another place. Well firstly, the word place here isn't speaking of a geographical location as much as a place within the household, a seat at the table, a position in the family as sons and daughters of the Father. And secondly, we need to realise what Jesus means when he talks about where I am. In Jesus, God comes and lives with us where we are on earth. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not God takes away our flesh so that we can go and live with him. By taking on our flesh, our humanity, taking on a body of flesh and bones and blood, a body made from the dust, a body that grew into an adult, a body that needed food and water and sleep, a body that could be touched and seen, that could be grabbed by the soldiers, whipped, spat upon, crown of thorns pressed into the flesh of his head, a body that could be hung on the cross, a physical cross with physical nails and then taken down, wrapped in a physical cloth, placed in a physical tomb. A body that carried all the weight 
of the guilt of our sin, all the pain of the judgment that was due to us. You can't get any more physical and earthy than he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And this is the same body then that was raised from death, needed the stone to be rolled away so that he could come out with feet that could be grasped by Mary. It was a body that ate food and drink, a body that still bore the scars of crucifixion that could be touched by Thomas. Jesus has made it very clear. The place where he is, where his dwelling place will be for eternity, is right here with us, walking among us in our flesh. These words of the Father from the throne in verse 3 are a declaration of fulfilled promises. Remember what God said to the Israelites as he brought them out of Egypt? I will make my dwelling among you, my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. The two remarkable things about Israel was firstly their God wasn't just one among the many gods. He is the one true God above the heavens. There was an outrageous claim to make that the most high God had chosen them out of all the nations to be his people. Even more outrageous though was that this God actually lived among and walked among his people. He lived in a tent. He went with them, going with them wherever they went. In that time of the Old Covenant, however, while God dwelt among them, there was still this curtain separating him from them, stopping people from coming directly into his presence and seeing his face. Well, that's what's different here. Now, under the new covenant, the blood of Christ has been shed, atoning for all of our sin, washing us from all uncleanness that will stop us from coming into the holy presence of God. Here in the new creation, the whole world is God's tabernacle. The word translated dwelling place is literally tent. Now God's tent is with man. So all who live in this new heavens and new earth inside God's tent and see how the curtain is gone. There's no barrier now between God and his people. This beautiful picture of communion and intimacy as God himself wipes away the tears from our eyes. The hand of God that comforts us is the same hand that threw death and Hades into the lake of fire. Death is no more. Not just physical death, because real death is separation from God's good and gracious presence. Physical death is the outward sign of spiritual death. So eternal physical life, which we will enjoy, is simply the outworking of having true life in God's presence. 
Now because death will be dead, there will be no more mourning, crying or pain. These three go together because they are three aspects of the impact of death on us and on the world. Mourning or grief, that's the internal, emotional, subjective fruit of death. The profound impact that it has on our souls to rob us of joy. Crying is the external expression of mourning. That word always refers to a verbal expression. It actually comes from the sound of a raven's cry. It's an outcry against injustice. It's eternal grief expressed in cries like, that's not fair, or how long, O Lord? And thirdly, pain. It's a word referring to the toilsome labour that came as a result of sin's curse, where work brings pain and suffering and has a futility because all of our achievements end in the dust of the grave. Now it may be hard for us to imagine what life will be like with all of those things gone because there's so much still part of our existence in the now. But although we experience them in the now because of the sure hope we have in Christ, the way that we experience them are profoundly different, or should be profoundly different to the world. So we still grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We still cry out in the face of pain and injustice, but we know the promise that our Father will certainly bring justice. And we still toil, but we have the assurance that all of our works will be rewarded by the Father. See how this isn't just mere pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die stuff. The realities of the new creation are at work already in us today through the Holy Spirit. We live already in the fulfilment of that promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. But that's not the only Old Testament promise being fulfilled here. Let's look at Isaiah 65. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. See the connection there. And see here how the new heavens and earth is to be the venue for the new Jerusalem. Not, not a physical construction, but the people themselves. Again, what a beautiful picture this is. It's reminiscent again of Genesis, when God planted a garden in Eden and then planted his people in the garden. Do you know what the word Eden means? It means pleasure or delight. It literally was the garden of earthly delights. 
and the new creation will be the garden of earthly delights in which God rejoices and delights in us as we rejoice and delight in all the good things he's given us, most of all himself. We'll keep going in this flow of Old Testament promises fulfilled. The Father then says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Verse 5, and then in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Another Old Testament promise from, we're spending a lot of time in Isaiah this morning, aren't we? Isaiah 43, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honour me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Again, it should remind us of Eden, the garden with rivers flowing from it, watering the earth. And we'll see this soon when we're invited to go down and to look inside the city of New Jerusalem. If you've ever lived in or visited the Australian outback, you'll understand this imagery, the dry, scorched, barren ground that's lifeless because of the lack of water. But what a difference it makes when the rains come and everything just springs to life. So the earth will be renewed, will teem with life and fruitfulness, not merely because all of the ecosystems will be functioning properly or not merely because human beings will no longer exploit it, but because the presence of God will be so tangible that every aspect of creation will flourish and be a display of his glory. If you love nature, if you find joy and delight in the beauty and wonder and intricacy of creation, that's a mere foretaste of what the creation will be like when it's renewed by the Father on the throne. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, everyone that drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus himself is the spring of the water of life. He will be the source of all life in the new creation. Now, just in case you're not sure about these promises, listen to what the Father says to seal and to guarantee them. Firstly, he says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What can you do to make sure that someone sticks to their word? Will you write down their words so there'll be no debate over what's been promised? This is what the Father is doing here. He's saying, you can hold me to this. 
write it down so that when it comes to pass, you will know that what I promise is what I do. These words written here by John 2,000 years ago, they're still with us. They're still the Father's pledge to us that he will make all things new. Secondly, he says, it is done, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Something else you might get someone to do to make sure they stick to their word is you get them to swear an oath before God. Now Abraham, who's the example to us of one who believed God's promises, he knew all about this. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Here's what the father is doing here. He's invoking his own name, his own character, putting himself on the line if he does not remain true to his promise to bring to completion all that he said he would do. Now when we're brought face to face with God's unwavering commitment to his promise, we're faced with a choice. Will we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator or not? See the two choices here in 7 and 8? There are the conquerors and there are the cowardly. The conqueror, as we've heard seven times in Jesus' message to the churches, it's not someone who overcomes sin and death and the devil by their own ability or goodness, but one who simply comes to the foot of the cross, receives freely the gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness achieved in his death and resurrection. So we conquer not in our own strength but by sharing in his victory. We're called a conqueror only so far as we are in Christ the conqueror by faith. But then there's the cowardly and imagine after that word cowardly a a colon. Cowardly sums up everything else that's in that list. Note that it's not a list of naughty things someone does, but a statement of what sums up someone's character. Not merely someone who tells lies, but someone who is defined by untruth. It's not merely someone who has committed sexual immorality, but someone who embraces it as good. It's not someone who has at some point bowed down to an idol, but someone who in their hearts has rejected the true and living God. And that's what we all are or were apart from grace. So if we reject the glorious gift of Jesus' righteousness, choosing instead to rest on ourselves and our own deeds, then it will be those deeds that define us. So here the Father's pledge, his guarantee of the new creation. Look and see how in this pledge he offers himself to us and all things freely in Jesus. Look and see all the 
goodness and richness of the life that he gives, the river of living water that flows from his heart to yours. Take hold of his promise so that you may be a citizen of this new creation. He will never turn away those who come to him in faith and his promises are able to keep you secure in full assurance of faith until that day.